you know, uh, a lot of us would like to be able to participate in a whole bunch of different things in life. And um, some of the times, the things that we want to participate in are things that we think maybe we would be really good at if we were just given an opportunity to, to do it. Like, you know, being a really super great musician. And that's what American Idol is for. Because your mama may have told you that you're a really great singer and you should go on American Idol. And the fool that you are, you did go on American Idol. And now, when you watch the replay of it, you see everybody in the United States laughing at you because you have no talent. Oops, did I say that out loud? Well, then there are others of us who are the wannabe athletes. We think that if we were just given the chance, we could have been a professional athlete. I could have been a professional football player, baseball player, basketball player. I just wasn't given the right chance. And I hate to, to uh, burst your little make-believe bubble, but the truth is you probably couldn't even make it on a JC team, junior college. And I'm not trying to be mean, I'm just being realistic. And, and sometimes... Your mom and dad did you a disfavor by not being realistic. You could be whatever you wanted. You're not going to be a brain surgeon. So let's just kind of sit back and remember that we become spectators of things, spectators of the things we really like. We watch American Idol because we wish we could be that singer. Or we watch The Voice because they're so amazing. And we, we love that. We watch sporting events. We watch golf to football to NASCAR to all these different events because what we're trying to do is we're trying to live our lives vicariously through those people trying to say, I could be that good if I was just given a chance. But what happens is, is that we end up sitting in the bleachers because we're spectators, not participants. We're part of the crowd and we're not down on the field or in the event doing the thing. We're observing what's going on. And the problem is, is that we really want to try to be an overachiever through somebody else's life. But the reality is, is that, well, I'm going to say it this way. Everybody on planet Earth is an underachiever. Because there's really only one overachiever, and his name is Jesus. The rest of us, we're just mere underachievers, which means that we're spectators or we're in the crowd, and we're watching the most amazing, overachieving participant ever, and his name is Jesus. And, and there's a big difference between being a, a part of a crowd and being a participant. A crowd watches. A participant engages. A crowd can be made, amazed for a moment. A participant is somebody who's committed to a way of life. Um, and I mention all this, and I'm telling you this, because at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, there's this same distinction is being carefully drawn out by Matthew. Now, some of you are going like, we're starting the Sermon on the Mount all over again? Yes, we are. You didn't get it the first time. Here's how Matthew put it in Matthew chapter 4. And he went through, throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis 
and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Now what Matthew wants us to know is that there's the crowds. That's what he says. There are these great crowds. And he doesn't make the distinction most other people make. He doesn't make the distinction between man and woman, Jew and Gentile, free and slave. His distinction is fairly simple, but it's so accurate. He makes the distinction between the crowd and the disciples. And Matthew actually mentions the crowd 49 times in his gospel writing. Now the crowds, they came to hear Jesus' teaching. They, made, they bring their sick, sick friends to be healed, and they're often amazed by what Jesus says and what he does. They call him a prophet, but they are present with Jesus only sporadically. They come to him when they have a need. They recognize him as being unique. But when circumstances of life hit, they drift away. On Palm Sunday, here's what happened. They thought it looked like Jesus might be the guy, the king, to overthrow the Roman government. And so the crowd cries out, Hosanna! But then on Friday, because Jesus hasn't done what they expected him to do to become king, now the same crowd cries out, crucify him. And that's, that's the fickleness of a crowd. But then when you think about what Matthew does and how he writes and the things he says, he, he mentions disciples 65 times. And a disciple is someone who used to be a part of the crowd, but somewhere along the line, Jesus got under their skin and they couldn't stand not being around him. They could not stand not hearing what he had to say. They had to get with him They didn't want to lose him, and so they were around him all the time. A a disciple, they're not satisfied just to hear what Jesus says. They have to do what he asks until they can see like he sees and that they can live like he lives. Now, you need to know this about Jesus. He loves the crowd. The crowd really gets to them. The crowd grabs his heart, not because he needs the attention, not because he lacks the, the ability to have his ego fed. That's not Jesus at all. The reason why Jesus loves the crowd is because he saw the dignity and the need of everybody in the crowd. Matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 9, uh, this is how Matthew described it. When he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. It was the crowds that Jesus saw. It was the crowds that grabbed his heart. And so as we go through and we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount and we're hearing these words and we're sitting under Jesus' grand invitation that he gives to all of us, what it does is it creates a crossroads. It it, it comes now to the place where we have to make a decision because he he really wants us to to think about the things that are happening and, and going on. And so... You may, be, you may have to ask yourself some of these questions. Questions like, am I just living like a part of the crowd? What, I, what have I committed myself to? What kind of a person am I seeking to become? How serious do I try to assess my moral and spiritual character? How will I continually, honestly examine my character? What should I do when I have wronged somebody? These are the questions 
that we need to ask ourselves. These are the questions we need to dwell on because these are the questions that someone who is moving from the crowd into being a disciple is continually bringing forth to their mind. Now, the way the crowd works is they just simply drift along through life. They just live in a world of comparison. I read not long ago that um, the effective way to get people to reduce energy consumption where they live is to compare them to the others around them. And so there are people now who are getting um, an energy bill with comparison on it, and it sounds something like this. 85% of the people with a home like yours uses less energy than you, you energy-sucking pig. Now, the truth is, is that that gets our attention. And, and the default mode of the, the human race is just to go along with the crowd. You know, sheep without a shepherd, as we just heard. We've seen it in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus calls that the, the broad road or the wide path. He calls it a house built on sand. He says it's going to crash. He actually ends his Sermon on the Mount with these words. The house on the sand fell, and its fall was great. It was catastrophic. It's not talking about the physical house. It's talking about somebody's life who has built their life on something other than the foundation of Jesus Christ, and everything that they did came crashing in on themselves. It was so catastrophic because it was dealing them with the blow that they would never live in harmony with Jesus forever. And so here are the last things that Matthew actually records on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, 28 and 29. And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. So, When we hear this, these words of Jesus and the grand invitation, and we come to this crossroads, the, the crossroads for us is, what will, or, or will I do what he says? Will I trust who he says he is? Will I go through the narrow gate of obedience, identifying with and following this man? Will I build my life on a foundation of his person and teaching and join his great kingdom? Or am I going to do my own thing? That's the crossroads. That's what we're being asked. In other words, will I be a part of the crowd or will I be a, become a disciple? That's what Jesus is asking us. He's asking us what we're going to do. Well, are we going to become part of the crowd or are we going to become part of the, the, the disciples? And here's the fundamental difference between the experience of being a crowd who looks at Jesus and being a disciple who follows Jesus. The crowds are amazed at what Jesus said to them. The disciples are amazed at what Jesus did with them. The crowds are amazed when they look at Jesus' life. The, the disciples are amazed when they look at their life with Jesus, how it's been transformed, how it's been changed, characterized primarily by Jesus' present work and grace in it. The disciples are amazed at their new identity, their new purpose, their new community, their new growth. Jesus gave a grand invitation. And it's for you, it's for me, to leave the crowd, become a disciple, and know the amazement 
that only Jesus' grand invitation is for you to, to walk now as a disciple of Jesus. And only you can know what the promises are that God has given to the disciples if you are a disciple. So what I want to talk to you about this morning are the promises that we have before us as a disciple of Jesus. And the Bible is a book that's literally filled with thousands of promises that God has given for disciples, followers of Jesus. Now listen, I said this last week, there's a a huge distinction between being a disciple and being a Christian. A Christian normally or typically is a person who has followed some kind of a set of religious ideas or religious teachings. They, They say that they like Jesus. They say that they might even love Jesus, but they're really not fully committed to everything that Jesus asks them to do. Whereas a disciple, on the other hand, is the person who when Jesus says, here's what you should do, they're saying, not only am I going to do this out of obedience for Jesus, I'm going to do it out of love for Jesus. I love Jesus so much, I'm going to follow everything that he says. I'm going to act in obedience to him. And what the Bible says is that's going on to the narrow path, which leads to life. You get on the narrow path through obedience to Jesus. The wide path is the path that leads to destruction. And so what, what's happening is, is that, that Jesus, when he got done speaking, the crowds were amazed, but the disciples were moved. Now, what we want to do is we've got to understand these promises that, that Jesus has given to us. And we we must have these promises vividly, compellingly, constantly before us if we're truly and deeply to desire the life, what it means to be in discipleship to Jesus and what his kingdom offers to us. And so for the early disciples of Jesus, these promises were vital for them as they, they did life together. Because life together in the New Testament, right after Jesus' resurrection, wasn't as life as we know it today. Just think about it. A persecution broke out in Jerusalem against the disciples. And at any moment, they could be arrested. They could be taken to prison. They could be thrown in jail. They could be tortured. They could be beaten. They could have all these other things taking place. They could actually end up in a coliseum and be killed as a martyr. That's what it meant to be a disciple. And so they they needed to know the promises, because they're not just promises about going to heaven when you die. These are promises for right now. I mean, you think about it. Those disciples, at that moment, they needed to know that those promises were real for right here, right now, through my entire life. And so, I want to give you one of them from an early follower of Jesus. You all know him. Peter, the guy that stuck his foot in his mouth. The guy that denied knowing Jesus. The guy that, you know stepped out of the boat and sank in water and had to be rescued. The guy that did all these, these things that were kind of duplicitous in his life, and he just kind of messed it all up. And yet, here's what he wrote in his second letter to the church. Here's what he wrote. He says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire. 
Now, just all you have to do is just look at the end of that sentence, and you can think about this. You and you and you, you're all going to be participants in the divine nature of God. That will look good on your resume. Just telling you. And you will participate in the divine nature. That is what it means is, is that you will regularly interact with the love and joy and spirit that lie at the heart of God. You will serve His great project, be fueled by His great power, be, be guided by His immense wisdom, be comforted by His constant friendship. That's what it means. That's what those promises are for us. Those promises are, are for us. And apparently God doesn't think that you're too ambitious or an overachiever. He thinks you're not ambitious enough. And so what he wants to do is he wants to give you a business card. And it will have your name on it. And then on the end of your name, okay, I didn't know if I was actually going to write anything up here today. I was going to try and fake you all out. But apparently I'm going to write something up here. So you're going to have your name. And this is going to be on your business card. And then you're going to have um, some letters. Let me give you the letters. It's not like, you know, L-M-N-O-P. It is... Divine Nature Participant. This is going to be on your business card from God. That's what he's saying about you. That's where he wants you to live. As a divine participant in His nature, in your life. This is amazing. And, and here's the great thing. It doesn't uh, require a degree, whether it's a high school degree or a college or a university or a master's degree. It doesn't require any of that. It doesn't require money. It doesn't require contacts or talent. It doesn't even require a high IQ. Should have been an amen in there somewhere. Because... The good news of Jesus is that we've been learning about from his great sermon is this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. For if they want, they may, pay, may participate in the divine nature. It will happen. Peter says, through this promise, not just the promise, precious promise, not just the precious promise, the great and precious promise. No, not just that. Very great and precious promise that he has for us, the divine nature. And you will notice Peter's statement when we take a look at it again, this very great and precious promise. Let's look at that, those verses again. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Not just some of what we need, everything we need. Not for the American dream, not to be rich, but for godly life. That is, God-like, God-pleasing, God-guided, God-favored, god empowered life. That's what it means to, to have the divine nature and participate in it. So, in the time that remains, we're going to look at some of these very great and precious promises of disciples of Jesus. And if you become a disciple, if you devote your way, yourself, to Jesus, not legalistically, not mechanically, not sporadically, 
but deeply, wisely, humbly, freely, continually. If you follow this man into his gospel of life with God and into his kingdom, you will be amazed before you're halfway through. And it will simply be amazing. And so what I want to do is I want to read some of the choices and riches promises as they're expressed in scriptures to us. And then I want to restate these words as I pick them up from a guy by the name of John Ortberg that can really help us understand how we actually experience them in our real lives. The reason I want to do this is that our vision of discipleship, of life, the kingdom together with our friend and Savior Jesus can burn inside of us with unforced desire so that intending to obey Jesus in all things can appear to us not as something strange or heroic, but as something that any sane woman or man would give their right arm for. It's that crazy. So here are the promises. Hang on. We're going to go through them. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Therefore, if there there, uh, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Be strong and courageous. Do not fr be frightened. And do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Jesus looked at them and he said, With man it is impossible. But not with God, for all things are possible with God. And now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree to another, of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is Spirit. I can do all things through him, that is Christ, who strengthens me. Those are the promises. Now, I, I want to repeat these very great and precious promises for disciples of Jesus, but I want to put it in a language for us, for the church, that's very concrete, very real life-like. Each one of these promises I'm going to say now is taken from the previous verses, just re-expressed. If we really devote to following Jesus above all other goals, we will find ourselves amazed before we're halfway through. Our satisfied des desire, our, our unsatisfied desires will cease to dominate us. Hurry and worry will begin to drop away. 
We will recognize and publicly confess our spiritual inadequacy with growing abandon and cheer on the others who do the same. A new inspiration will begin to guide our thought life. Shame and judgment will gradually lose their grip on us. We will find ourselves making better decisions. Our weaknesses no longer torment us. We find a power greater than ourselves, often at work precisely in them. We're growing less and less easily irritated and or discouraged. Money, worries, and selfishness begin to fade while generosity grows. Our sense of identity and usefulness will deepen. We are becoming the people our mothers believed we could be. We will be increasingly filled with joyful dependence on our friend and Savior, Jesus Christ. Those are your promises. Those promises are for every day. Those promises are the promises that we need. But my question is, are those extravagant promises? I don't think so. Matter of fact, I've watched some of my close friends go through all of these promises very closely. They've experienced them as very great and precious promises more deeply than I have. But I also want you to know that I have been involved in them. They have been a part of my life. I'm watching them take hold of my life and change who I am. I've been going through a season of life that has been unusually challenging for me. It's been stressful and it's been weighty. I probably shouldn't say this because my wife is sitting here and my brothers might actually even listen to it online. But I can tell when my blood pressure has gone up over the last year, I can tell it in my body. My body can feel it, and I know it's not good. And I've been through this season of life, and it it has really been difficult. But I don't need to go into the details, because there's others of you who will be walking through seasons way more daunting than I am. But I've had even several circumstances involving people I love and problems I cannot solve. And for some reason, they all hit me at the same time. And here's what Jesus says to me. Here's what Jesus says to you. I will give you today whatever you need for today. If I don't give it to you, you don't need it. And you can remain in my love without it. And I will give you today what you need for today. You know how we know that's what Jesus said? Because when he taught the Lord's Prayer, he taught us to say this, give us this day our daily bread. And he will. And I can't tell you the extent to which this is true. You can only experience it for yourself. Here's the thing. When I want to obsess over some bad potential outcome, In one of these challenging areas, it's a make-believe outcome, when I just want to ruminate over some bad scenario, I can feel my body, this sense of dis-ease and fear and alarm growing up. And when I would focus my mind on God, when I would fasten my thoughts on the promises and reality that He is with me, and is helping me become the person he wants me to be in any single moment. And whatever my, whenever my will is surrendered to him, God will give me strength 
any single moment I asked for. And I'm not kidding you. I could feel it in my physical body, the peace of God's presence. It's like my body's this kind of unusual, extraordinary season that it's an instrument where I can feel when my mind is set on death and when my mind is set on God in life. One of the great and precious promises of God is, God, you will keep in perfect peace the one whose mind is stayed on you. And it's true. So, you can follow the crowd if you want. Most people do. But I would ask you, what does money promise you? What does success promise you? What does great health promise you? What does security promise you? And will they keep their promises? One thing is for sure. You will build your life on some promise or another. You will bet your existence on some choice, on some foundation. And that's true for all of us. Everybody builds a house, builds a life, builds a soul, even if you just drift into it. Now, here's what I want to do. I'm going to have a couple of guys. They've got some cards, and the, the card looks just like this. You guys get up and ready to hand those out, please. And, and the card looks like this. It looks like our other card regularly on the front side. We handed this out week to the five that were here on Mother's Day. And on the back side, we have something different. And so if you weren't here last week, what I'd like you to do is just slip up your hand, and these fellas will hand you one of these cards. And I want everybody to have one, because this is really highly important for us as we think about what we're doing in life and, and how we're going to deal with life. Because... Nobody has ever made a promise the way that Jesus did. Here's what Jesus said. I have come that you might have life and have it with abundance. These things that I have taught you, that my joy might be in you and your joy might be complete. Whoever trusts in me, as scripture says, rivers of living water will flow out of their belly. In this world you have problems. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world and lo, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Are these promises extravagant? Nope, they're not. They're just real and for every day. And they're being fulfilled quickly and slowly in every one of our lives as we give ourselves to God, as we commit to discipleship. So here's what I want you to do with this card. Because what we're doing is we're at, we're, the, the commitment that we're looking for is, you know... Um, Which one are you going to choose? Are you going to remain in the crowd? Or are you going to commit yourself to being a disciple? I'm enrolling in the school of Jesus. That's discipleship. That's where you learn. I make him my master. I commit to being with him each day to learn from him and how to live like him. I do this humbly in the shadow of the cross and hopefully in the light of the resurrection. And then what I, we want you to do, you're not handing this in to me. You're not handing it in to anybody. What it is, is it's a reminder between you and God that when you sign this thing, what you're saying to God is you're saying, I am committing to being a disciple. I am committing my life to follow you at every cost, at every turn, at every extent. I'm tired of being in the crowd where I just kind of come and go and I only seek you when... Um, 
truly need you. I want to be there present all the time. So what I want you to do is if, if that's what you want to do, and you don't have to sign today. Take it home. Think it over. Pray about it. But here's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to sign this. This is, this is the big version of that card, even though I didn't write everything up there. I'm going to put my name on here. And then I want you to hold me accountable to this. I want you, because it's going to be sitting right up here over in the corner, and this pen is going to be up here. If you want a witness for me, just come put your name on my piece of paper. Okay? But I'm going to sign. I'll date it. So you can come up, you can grab the pen, it'll just be laying right here, don't worry, I've done that before, I survived. And here's where I want to end with this, because the people that really get this, they really gravitate to it, there's a group of people who are really going like, man, this resonates in my soul, this is the thing that really tugs at my heart, I really understand what Jesus is calling me to. There are other people that are going like, I don't get it. I, I mean, like, really, I just don't, it just doesn't make sense. Why would you want to do that? Well, here's what Paul told the Corinthian church. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. If this really resonates in your heart, and if you're going like, man, discipleship, being a disciple of Jesus, that's a total different place to be. That's because you understand what Jesus is calling you to. If, you, if, you're, if you're going like, I, I don't get it, we want to help you get it. If you want to know what it looks like to be a, a true disciple of Jesus, um, Fred and Mary, raise your hands. They're right over here. Fred prayed. They're going to be back at the coffee bar during the singing time. And if you want to talk to him about what it really means to be a true disciple of Jesus, you go and talk to him, and he'll pray with you. I'm going to pray for you, and then um, I'm going to move this now so that I don't fall. Like, you know, I have kids doing this, and I tell them not to fall and break their neck, and I about did. So there you go. You can come up and sign it during songs. You can do it after church. If you want someone to witness yours, I'll be more than happy to witness yours. This is, this is the moment God has brought us to today as a church, as a body, as a family. Father, we thank you so much that your words are true, that you have given us a vast amount of promises that we can live by, that we can hang our hats on, that help us to get through the storms of life, that, that we've built our house on this solid rock of Jesus, that we are no longer building on the sandy land, that our houses are not going to collapse on them, that our souls, that our lives, God, are built on you, that we have given all of this to you. And this morning, all we're doing is making a declaration to you. All we want to do is, is say to you, yes, I am your disciple. And then just as we have this card tucked in our Bibles or by our nightstands, it would be just a reminder every day that we've committed to being with you, to learn from you, how to live like you how to humbly live in the shadow of your cross, what it looks like 
with the resurrection in light of all of, of what we've done. So, Father, may you do your work in our lives and may we be obedient to you. We pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.